this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode six of Cold War Conversations, where we talk about the relatively little-known uprising of 1953 in East Germany. A lot of focus is on the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it can be argued that the uprising of 1953 sowed the seeds for the eventual demise of the GDR. We chat with Dr Richard Millington, who has studied the uprising and shares with us some fascinating research, including eyewitness accounts and details from the Stasi files of the period. Hello, Richard. Oh, hi, Ian. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast. Oh, well, uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Good, good. Well, I hope you uh, still think that at the end of it. But anyway, <laughs> let's let's start. So can you uh, just tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and, and what you do? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm programme leader for German at the University of Chester. So I work in the modern languages department there. Um, and my background is actually German language, but I would actually say I'm a, a historian in a languages department. Um, so what I do is I teach German language, but mixed with history, uh, politics, bit of literature. Um, and my main research focus is is East Germany, particularly um, the uprising of 17th of June 1953. And my current project, uh, because my uprising research was... Um, a bit in the past now, but my current project is looking at crime in East Germany. Oh, okay. Oh, well, uh, I've got a guest coming up that you might be interested in then around I'll, that. I'll look forward to that then, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking to the uh, author of the Stasi Child series. All right, David Jung, yeah. 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 Oh, great. Um, I've not managed to get to those books yet, but they're definitely on my reading list. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, they're, no, they're, well, they're well worth a read. So um, why the focus on GDR history? Why, why do you think that's, well, not necessarily more important than other bits of German history, but why, why is that your area of interest? Um, I suppose I, I kind of like the ideological side of it. I'm fascinated by this, um, the ideologies, and it's a little bit, it's difficult, certainly, to communicate to my students today that people were prepared to die for for political beliefs. I mean, I think today they're more used to people perhaps being prepared to die for religious beliefs. Yeah. Um, but the whole concept of capitalism versus communism, um, I find fascinating. And there's a certain mystique about it as well. I mean, I like the... I like, maybe sometimes go on YouTube, have a look at, you know, the parades, you see the the billboards, all the propaganda. Yeah, the imagery yeah. is really powerful, I, I always think. Yes, it is, yeah. And um, I suppose as well, well, German history for me is not just the Nazis, I suppose. You wouldn't believe that if you go in most bookshops, but yes. <laughs> no, I agree. Uh, or, or if you speak to most taxi drivers, they ask you what you do. <laughs> Okay, so um, obviously today we're going to be talking about the 1953 uprising, but can you just give a little bit of background as to what the situation was in the GDR in the late 40s and, and early 50s? Yeah, well, um, 
Well, the GDR was was officially founded on uh, in 1949. The um, the ruling party in the GDR, the SED, that had been created in in 1946 um, out, out of the SPD, so the Social Democratic Party of Germany and the Communist Party of Germany, and really the SED was meant to unite those two parties, but it was really um, it was a communist party. It was created under the pressure from the Soviet authorities. So, the, so, so it was a shotgun marriage then, really? Yeah, the Social Democrats were, I always get the feeling they were told to or join the party or, or well, face, face the consequences, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the SED, that was really the, that was the only party that was constitutionally allowed to, to govern in East Germany. There were other political parties in East Germany the so-called block parties, but they were they were kind of fronts, I suppose, for the SED. For example, we've got the NPDP, which was the uh, the Nationalist Party, that was kind of designed to um, attract well attract people of a nationalist persuasion. But mm-hmm. it was really a party, and the block parties really were they were controlled by the SED as well. So from from what I understand is that, you know, Albrecht, who was the um, the leader of the SED, he wanted to move towards a, you know, a greater Stalinist model within the GDR. Yes. Um, well, it, obviously, at the end of the late 40s, Stalin was still very much alive. It was the height of well, the early Cold War. And yeah, the, the GDR really in those days followed the motto and uh, towards the end I said right through its the period of its existence followed the motto learning from the USSR means learning to win um, and Ulbricht very much was a, a Stalinist leader. Uh, Honecker the later leader from 1971 Stalinism had um, gone out of fashion I suppose if you like it at that period but definitely in the late 40s 50s Ulbricht was, was the Stalinist leader of the GDR. Okay and um, I understand that sort of like you know what one of the the catalysts towards uh you know fermenting the uprising was this um second party conference can you just take us through what what decisions were made there yeah sure now um this took place um in July 1952 and a, a few days before the National newspaper of East Germany, uh, Neues Deutschland, which was really the mouthpiece of the SED, it announced that the the, the party would announce a major program to push forward the advancement of of socialism in the GDR at, at this conference. So, what happened at this conference? Well, first of all, Ulbricht gave a speech uh, which lasted for six hours. Um, Fantastic! <laughs> I, bet, I bet that's not on YouTube. Uh, no, no, I certainly wouldn't have time to watch it. Um, and what he, what Albert did in this speech was he said, he announced that now was the time to push forward with the construction of socialism in East Germany. And what this basically meant to Albert and the SED was the Stalinization of of East Germany. He he actually, the conference ended with another speech for Albert and he said, at the end of the speech, we will win because great Stalin leads us. Um, so what this meant was remodeling East German society and the East German economy, according to the Stalinist model. Um, 
Now, you might think, well, the, the GDR was uh, founded in 1949. Hadn't they done that already? But this was, some people have regarded this announcement in 1952 as a decisive point um, for, it was a decision that the GDR would, would turn to the east because West Germany as it has as existed then, it, it was on a process or a programme of westernisation. So this was all Britain, the SED, saying, well, right, we will turn towards the east. So this announcement of the construction of socialism really it was the final nail in the coffin, I suppose, of hopes for a German reunification. It was a, it deepened the rift between the two Germanies. Right. And, and this was a hardcore sort of program, wasn't it? So this was collectivization and, you know, yeah, like, how far did, was it intended to go? Uh, well, it was supposed to remodel East Germany on on the on the model of the USSR. So as you mentioned, collectivization, um, land and farms were taken off, taken from farmers, effectively nationalised and then redistributed to groups of farmers. So everybody had I suppose their fair share or everybody was part of, everybody worked for the collective. No one worked for their private gain Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, There was a process of nationalisation of private businesses. There were still some private businesses um, existent in in the GDR at that time. So they were nationalised and the methods that were used would be to revoke licences to practice business or to withdraw the ration cards from private businessmen to make life fairly impossible for them to carry on. Um, certainly the collectivization of farms, anybody, any private farmers who are refusing collectivization would, one of the methods was to set them impossible, for example, grain quotas to fulfill each month. So they would be set a quota of so many tons of grain, which would be literally impossible to, yeah. to produce. And then, when they don't produce that grain, they either face a large fine, they face perhaps prison, or they have two options. You can give up your farm or you can try and escape to the West. Right. Um, so we've got types of repression like that. There's the repression of the class enemy as well. So anybody who's perceived to be an enemy of the SED is um, arrested or put under pressure to conform. And one interesting group is the the so-called the Junger Gemeinde, which means, which was the church youth groups. The church, the SED was quite suspicious of the church because it was really perhaps the only other organisation in East German society that was perhaps capable of mobilising a large number of people. Mm. Echoes Um, of 89 then. (laughs) Yeah, sure, yeah. So if you, the Junger Gemeinde, the youth groups, their members were targeted um, to renounce their membership of the church so if you if you carried on being a member of the youth group then you perhaps wouldn't be able to study to do a levels you wouldn't be able to go to university so in order to do that you would have to renounce your allegiance mm. to wow. okay so so albrick does his uh, brief six hour speech um and then his uh, hero and guide promptly uh, drops dead yes uh, so that was in 5th of march uh, on the 5th of March 1953. Something that I should mention about the, the party conference, though, mm-hmm. um, which is important for the story of 17th of June, is that the SED decided to invest heavily in, in heavy industry because, uh, according to Stalinism, um, investment in 
or increasing productivity in industry and lowering the costs in industry would would lead to an increase in living standards. So one of the major, I suppose, the mistakes that the SED made was to pour as much money as possible into heavy industry and the construction industry at the expense of the consumer goods industry, which obviously people weren't happy about. Um, and the main, or one of the main ways that they they did to increase productivity in the in heavy industry was to increase working quotas for the workers. So what that would effectively mean was uh, in order to get their quota fulfillment bonuses, the workers now would have to do more work and, and do more work more quickly. And a lot of those workers relied on those bonuses to top up their wages. So this invest, this increase in the quotas made a lot of them very unhappy and alienated them from the SED effectively. Yeah, so potentially they were having to they'd end up with a pay cut because they wouldn't reach the quota that they were reaching before. Yeah, the, the quotas were generally increased by 10%, so they would have to work 10% harder in order to get that premium that they, that they relied on. Okay, okay. Uh, so, so with, with the, the, the death of Stalin, there's a change of leadership in the Soviet Union, and so how, how do they feel about Albrecht's... Uh, plans well they're they're not too not too keen on them i suppose the the death of stalin that 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 shocked or that shook a lot of people in east germany i mean the the headline on the front page of neues deutschland was the heart it, it read the heart of the greatest man of our era comrade stalin has stopped beating from my interviews with with people with people who lived in east germany at that time we've got some Amazing stories of how people reacted to the death of Stalin. One one man I spoke to, his auntie just couldn't stop crying. Um, someone was due to get married. You weren't allowed to get married because Stalin was dead. You couldn't you couldn't buy flowers for any sort of celebration in the shops because Stalin was dead. And were these people who had always been hardcore communist, or you know what had been their political position in the Nazi era, for example, or I think they've probably always been hardcore communists. I mean, okay. I spoke to quite a few people who seem to just flick a switch and go from Nazism to communism. Yeah. I suppose adapt, yeah, people adapt to the current situation, I suppose. Um, but these were hardcore communists, and they, they did regard Stalin as, as, the, as the man who saved them from, from Hitler, from fascism. Uh, so it is... I suppose you can understand them being upset. And we've got this personality cult around Stalin elevated to the status of a god, I suppose, if you like, for hardcore communists. Mm-hmm. One one other story that I was told was um, there were some parades that took place in, in Magdeburg, where I did my research, parades that took place in mourning for Stalin. And this guy I spoke to, his friend, he didn't wear formal shoes to the parade. He wore his whatever they were, I think he called them, he wore crepe short, crepe sole shoes. Um, and he was expelled from university because he hadn't showed the required respect for Stalin at the parade. Wow. So just by not wearing the right pair of shoes, his education was just blown yes. away. Yes. Yeah. That's how seriously they, they took it. Yeah. Going back to what happened after the death of Stalin, in the, in the GDR at that time, there is a there is a, a record that acts of opposition and acts of defiance actually increased because people 
began to think, well, maybe this is the end of it. Maybe Stalin's gone now. Maybe the maybe East Germany will crumble because Stalin's not there. So the acts of opposition and defiance, I suppose, increased. And um, we've got I've I've read reports of of vicars telling their congregation that God had finally struck down the devil. <laughs> um, but then with a warning that there were still a lot of little devils in East Germany that needed to be dealt with. Wow. Um, yeah, so we've got this uh, a troika of leaders who took over. They took interim control. You've got Lavrenti Beria, um, head of the Secret Service. You've got Georgi Malenkov, uh, Malenkov, minister president. And then we've got Molotov, who was foreign minister. And then you've got Khrushchev also in the background. And they really are locked in a, a power struggle uh, for a few months um, in this vacuum that Stalin created, uh, but they they called um, they called Ulbricht to Moscow because well they'd had word from Vladimir Semyonov, the the ambassador to the GDR, that things that life wasn't rosy for the SED in in East Germany, and they basically they invited Ulbricht to Moscow and basically told him. Or Semenov actually did tell him, you won't have a country in a few months if you don't change course immediately. Yeah, I think you're probably being polite saying it was an invite. <laughs> I imagine it was uh, probably a little bit more formal than that. <laughs> a summons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, the problem that the SED faced was that um, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people were leaving East Germany because of the repressive programme that the the SED had introduced. I mean, in 1952 alone, 182,000 people left. And in February 1953, 21,000 left. The following month, March 1953, 31,000 people left. Wow. So, so the, this obviously the the Berlin Wall didn't exist um, then. So you could easily cross into uh, West Berlin and and get out that way what what about the other the german german border was that well fortified at that point or was it relatively porous i don't i wouldn't say it was easy to get across i've seen the only thing i can think of is i've seen some films where people try to escape and it's always at night and it's always across country mm-hmm. um so that would indicate to me that it wasn't that easy to get across right um the problem that the SED also faced was that a lot of people who were leaving were skilled and the the way they treated farmers as well, a lot of farmers were leaving and that led to short supplies of food in, in East Germany, short supplies of basic foodstuffs like butter, like sugar. Um, I've, um, I've seen one Stasi file that recorded uh, someone had been singing a song to the tune of Deutschland, Deutschland über Alice. Um, but they were singing Deutschland, Deutschland ohne Alice, which means Germany, Germany without everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, and we've got report, I've read one report of even the food that was available. Someone bought a packet of biscuits and complained that they tasted and smelled like petrol. Um, now, petrol was also in short supply, so it definitely wasn't petrol in the biscuits, but I'm not quite sure what was in. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So, so what did um, the the troika in uh, Moscow uh, tell Ulbricht that he he needed to do then? 
Um, well, basically, they told him he needed to go, go back to East Germany and um, more or less rescind or alleviate all the measures or most of the measures that, that the SED had taken at the Second Party Conference in 1952. So what then happened was, that was 2nd of June, actually, 1953, when they when he went to Moscow. Then on the 11th of June, Neues Deutschland, the newspaper, um, published this announcement from the SED, which actually literally said, the party has made a number of mistakes, and we will be doing everything we can to correct these mistakes. Um, now, that angered, obvious, for obvious reasons, many people in East Germany. They had suffered under the programme to construct socialism, whether that be they had had to work hard to get their premiums, whether they, they'd been fined because they didn't want to nationalise their business, whether they'd just been accused of being um, an opponent of the SED for for very flimsy reasons, just things like that. And they'd suffered since 1952, and now they were effectively told, sorry, it was a mistake. Um, so so you can yeah, imagine, that, yeah, I can imagine that not going down too well. No, and it did lead to some isolated strikes and some isolated demonstrations. Yeah. yeah. Um, did, did Ulbricht try and blame other people for the mistakes, or did he admit that the mistakes were were his um no i don't think he was a man to admit admit his mistakes <laughs> um, i didn't think he would be somehow <laughs> what we've got in actually in neues deutschland on the 14th of june there was a newspaper article published and the title was it's it's time to put down the mallet so it's time to put down the the hammer that we're beating the people with i suppose but this didn't blame Ulbricht, you might look at the headline and think, oh, this is this will be criticism of Ulbricht, but it blamed the lower levels of SED members. They they had not implemented the policies correctly. Um obviously they had. They had they had implemented them according to what they'd been told from upon high. But now Ulbricht he wasn't admitting it wasn't his mistake. It was the mistake of the local party organisation. Yes. Okay. So so they they make this announcement, and that it it sounds like it exacerbates things. So is there is there a sort of a spark that's ignited at this point? Yes, there is because one thing that the new course, so this program of rescinding all the measures and alleviating the pain, I suppose, of the population. One thing that that forgot or that that left out was the increase in the working quotas for industrial and construction workers because this wasn't a mistake. The SED still believed that they needed to increase productivity in industry. So it wasn't a mistake or an oversight that the, the working quotas were left out of the new course. Um, but this obviously angered the construction and the heavy industry workers because they saw everybody else you know, being given a break and they were still having to work 10% or 20% as hard and as quickly in order to get their bonuses, they felt that they were still being punished by the SED. Right. Um, okay. And what this, there was most consternation on, on building sites in East Berlin, on, on the, the Stalin Alley, which was the, that was really a showpiece street in East Berlin. Um, so this is the street that's now called Karl Marx Alley. 
Yes, I, th- I think so. I think it goes into Frankfurt Rally as well, yeah. I think. Okay. What this basically was, was a Soviet-style uh, wide tree-lined boulevard where where the workers were, according to the SED, building palaces for the working class. Um, and this was still under construction in 1953. So we've got a lot of building sites around there, a lot of angry construction workers. And on the 15th of June, they actually wrote a letter to Otto Krotovol, who was the prime minister in East Germany, saying, we want you to take up to reduce our working quotas immediately because why should we still be having to do this work? Mm-hmm. Um, Rotevold didn't reply. He he didn't want to look weak. He didn't really know what to do. He didn't know how to reply. And the construction workers said that they wanted to know by the morning of 16th of June. Well, they turned up to work on the morning of 16th of June and they had they had had no response from Grotevall. And what exacerbated the situation further was that they picked up their trade union newspaper, the Tribuna. There was only one trade union in East Germany, and that was their, their newspaper. Um, they picked that up, and one of the headlines of the main article was, of course, the working quota increases are correct. Um, and they regarded that as the response from Crotable. They They'd written this letter saying, we, we want to reduce the quotas again. And they regard this newspaper article saying, well, the quota increases are correct. They're not going to be reduced. They thought that was the response. So right. they immediately they immediately down tools and go on strike. And then it basically sp- spreads from those construction sites. Um, they decide to march to the House of Ministries in the centre of East Berlin because they want to speak to Ulbricht. Um, and as as they move towards the House of Ministries in the centre of East Berlin, other people then start to join them. So it begins as a workers' demonstration, but it quickly becomes a demonstration of that just passes by passes by people in offices, thinking they're demonstrating against the the SED. They're not happy. I'm not happy as well. I'm going to join in with them. And then pretty soon you've got a crowd of about 10,000 people in front of the House of Ministries in in East Berlin uh, demanding to speak to Albrecht. Wow. Okay. And and how how did the West respond to to this? Well, the West the West didn't. (laughs) Some of the people I spoke to I spoke to in my interviewees would would deny this, but the, the West didn't get involved. I mean, I spoke to a few people who said there were Western agents everywhere. Um, and the West didn't respond. I suppose they didn't, they wanted to wait and see what would happen. I suppose they also, well, if they had gone, if they had been shown publicly to be supporting the demonstrations, well, then they, they risk possible World War Three. I suppose. Right. And I, I, I guess, you know, the, the, you know, there's an arg. You know, the the West might just want the status quo to remain, and they don't want anything that might spill over into their sectors as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a few years later, in 1961, we've got President Kennedy's quote about the Berlin Wall: "It's not, it's not a pretty solution, but it's a thousand times better than a war." Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose that was very much the attitude as well. And um, so, at the House of Ministries, this. Albrecht doesn't appear. I don't. I don't think Albrecht was there. Um, 
the the SED ministers inside the House of Ministries they send out junior staff to <laughs> to deal with the deal with the angry customers. Send the junior staff out. Yeah. Um, the crowd aren't happy with this, and they um, they begin to call for the the call for the head of Albright, call for the regime, call for a the, the downfall of the regime. And a couple of workers address the crowd, and they they say we need to. There will be a general strike tomorrow. So on seventeenth of June, they announce there will be a general strike in East in East Germany. Right. So so the demands start to morph into more than changes to the quotas. They yeah, it, it really began with the with the quotas issue, but as um, more people got involved from different backgrounds, different walks of life, it really it becomes an anti-SED uprising. They want to get rid of the SED government. They they want to get rid of Ulbricht. Ulbricht was hated by them mm. for, for very good reasons, I suppose. Um, now, now I, I, un- I understand that the radio in the American sector, RIAS, was got involved as well. I mean, despite you know what, what we were talking about, you know, the West not wanting to stir things up, um, the radio stations did start to stir things up. Yes, they did. What what happened was when the crowd dispersed in front of the House of Ministries, a group of workers went to the RIAS headquarters in West Berlin and asked them to to broadcast a call for the general strike because a lot of people in East Germany, they listen to RIAS. Um, sometimes I talk to people and they're surprised that they were allowed or that they could receive the Western radio and they were allowed to listen to it. They technically weren't allowed to listen to it, but but almost everybody listened to RIAS or some Western station. So the, this group of workers went to the headquarters and asked them to broadcast a general stri- call for a general strike. Um, there's some discussions whether whether they should whether RIAS should do that or not with the heads of RIAS, but then they decide, yes, we will broadcast. And then... So what, yeah, go on. So pretty much from the the evening of 16th of June all the way through the night, the RIAS are, if if they're not um, broadcasting the call for the general strike, then they're reporting on what has been happening in East Berlin. Okay. And and how was RIAS organised? I mean, it wasn't part of the American military, was it? Was it an independent station of some sort? I'm not quite sure. It it must have had connections to the, the occupying American forces. It, it must have. It, it wasn't. It would have had links to the. I'm sure there would have been American advisors in. Yeah, because I'm interested to know how those decisions were 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 made. Because you know, as as you commented, you know, this could have potentially triggered a much bigger incident cross border or cross zone, um, and you know, what, what, whether anybody made a call to. Um, you know the uh, the U you know the uh, U.S. military governor to say, "Are you all right with us broadcasting this stuff?" Yeah, but I mean, it it probably did happen that they probably would have had to make calls, and maybe that was the extent to which the West was willing to get involved. Yeah, um, not to send tanks over the border, not to supply arms or anything like that, but to, um, well, to ramp up the propaganda war, I suppose. Yeah. And um, get involved that way. Yeah, because I, I had wondered how it had spread. Because obviously, the 
you know, the, the image you get of this uprising is it's very much Berlin focused and the Berlin, you know, building sites and, and that's where it starts from. But it appears the more you read about it, you know, there were really significant demonstrations and uprisings in other cities in East Germany as well. Yeah, I mean, um, protests are recorded in over 700 localities in East Germany. So not just big cities, smaller towns and villages. Uh, so you've got you've got Ria spreading the word. You've also got people who commute to East Berlin to work and then go home in the evening. You've got day trippers to East Berlin uh, going there for, for a break and, and going home in the evening. Everybody's spreading the word about what they had seen in East Berlin. And then you've got Rias covering more or less the whole of East Germany. I know Dresden, Dresden mm-hmm. wasn't, couldn't receive it that well. But so you've got word spreading like that. So it really is not just an East Berlin uprising. It, it really, it was an East Germany uprising. But this isn't like, I mean, I think that the important thing to, this isn't like Hungary in 1956 where, you know, the secret police were lynched and that sort of level of violence i mean there was some violence but were party officials beaten up and you know what 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 happened there definitely um i think about if i remember correctly about maybe 30 or so uh, sed officials or policemen were were killed right during the uprising i know from my own research in magdeburg three policemen were were killed when demonstrators tried to storm the prison, the free political prisoners in Magdeburg, and they'd they disarmed some uh, Fox Polizei officers, and they, when they tried to storm the prison, they were met with gunfire from the prison guards, and they returned fire, and three three police officers were killed. Right. Wow. People were killed in Halle, uh, trying to storm the prison in Halle. I know of one case where one. One well-known, I think he was an SED member, but he was also a Stasi informer, and he liked, to, I can't quite remember where this was, but it was someone who liked to let other people know he was a Stasi informer. as some sort of power trip. He oh, was right. he was chased down on 17th of June and, and beaten to death. Um, so th- there was a high level of, of violence. Of course, demonstrators also died in the ensuing um, crushing of the protests uh, there are no there are no exact figures for how many people died but it's certainly around uh, around 80 to 100 people right wow and I, I suppose because this is only um eight eight years after the end of world war Two, that there is still a sort of element of the social democratic party who didn't want to be part of the SED, but were still active to some degree underground in some shape or form. Is that? Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, 
get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I think I think so, yeah. There was the S I think it's the SPD Ost, I think. Mm. Um uh, I don't know a great deal about that, I must admit. Um there were certainly well, uh, they were probably active, but the the thing about this uprising is that doesn't there was no political leadership. Um there was no one really or well there was no one, no top level SED minister who saw these demonstrations and, and thought this is my this is my opportunity to bring Ulbricht down. Yeah. Um and that's perhaps why it did it only really lasted for a day or so because it really was um an outpouring of anger and fury against the SED and against Ulbricht. Right. Yeah. So there's there's no Lech Valencia or Imre Naj or Gamulka. Yeah. Uh, no no one like no do check or anything like no. that um but it's definitely anti-SED it starts off anti-SED we've got one one famous slogan is in the in the German Spitzbart Balkontbrille is it nicht des Volkes Villa which which means Spitzbart is means the man with the goatee beard it's <laughs> Bauch is the man with the stomach which was Wilhelm Peak. he was quite portly gentleman um and Brille is glasses a pair of the man who wears glasses, which is quotable. So they chanted the man with the goatee beard, the man with the stomach, the man with the glasses, Sint Nichtes Falkers Villa are not what the people want. <laughs> uh, so that was that was a I think that was chanted in Dresden. Um there are also calls for the reunification of Germany, for free elections, for better living and working conditions, and then other other local issues, local demands were made to improve local conditions. Mm. Um, so it was definitely against anti-SED yeah. slogans chanted. Yeah, more or less, more or less everywhere was the reunification of Germany because that was still a new, a new thing. Right. Um, so, so, so the, these demands are sort of absolute red lines for the SED leadership. So they start hitting the panic button. Yeah, it definitely yes. Um, I mean, again, there was there were no concerted efforts to try to take political control of the country. They they didn't. The demonstrators didn't try to take over offices of communication. They didn't try to take over weapons stores, anything like that. They didn't try to link up with other demonstrations in other parts of the country. Um, it really was just people losing it i suppose right um, so so the the volks are made did they they just stay in barracks and i think the the army was in its infancy in 1952 i think 1952 that was but i might be wrong there um they didn't have, they definitely had the armored people's police the the kvp um but so they were reliant on the soviets as their army or, or their territorial defence. Yes, because the they did have the KVP, which was armed Volkspolizei, but they they didn't trust them. They they didn't send them out onto the streets because the SED were worried that they would actually join the demonstrators. <laughs> <laughs> so and they would have 
they would obviously have weapons. Okay. Um, so so Albrecht calls Moscow and says, I need your help. More or less, yes. So the Soviet tanks and troops, they, they turn up um, in the late afternoon on the 17th of June. Um, just going back to what the demonstrators did, though they, it really was an outpouring of anger. So they stormed, they stormed SED headquarters buildings. They stormed headquarters buildings of the Free German Youth of the Trade Union. Um, and what they basically did was they trashed everything. They threw everything out of windows. They burned everything they could find. They targeted symbols of the regime. So they tore down propaganda billboards, destroyed them. They, I know for a fact that in Magdeburg, uh, people took down the Karl Marx street sign and then dubbed what it used to be called before <laughs> East Germany. I think it was called Broadway. So they tore Karl Marx street sign down and then graffitied Broadway back on it. But as I said, so prison, prisons were stormed in order to free political prisoners. But as I said, there was no sort of coordination or communication and that really helped the Soviet troops and tanks to to restore order, I suppose, because they they just turn up. Um, in some cities and towns, it's enough for them to turn up for people to, to disperse because, yeah. well, if you're... If you're demonstrating and a tank comes around the corner and you, the best you can do is throw a stone at it, you're not going to try and take the tank on with a stone, are you? So um, in in some instances, though, the crowds didn't disperse and that's when Soviet troops opened fire. Right. Um, normally, normally they shot above the heads of the demonstrators, but in some cases and in cases where that was, where that did happen, bullets did go into the demonstrators. Um, a lot of passers-by were killed. Um, so people who were not taking active part but were sort of milling about. That's what you find with this uprising, that a large proportion of the people on the streets are just actually just milling about and having a look what's going on. They're not, they're not battering doors down. They're not laying siege to prisons. They're just seeing what's going on. And a lot of them, a lot of them were wounded as well. Wow. Okay. So uh, do you know or have you managed to find out sort of what instructions the Soviet army or the Red Army had as far as their, you know, instructions as to who to open fire on or when to open fire? Because I guess they had to be really careful they didn't accidentally shoot across the the zonal boundary as well. Yeah, well, um, I think their remit was just to restore order, I suppose, that there were a couple of West Berliners who were killed by bullets that did actually cross the border. Um, I know I think it was a young boy actually was killed in in his parents' flat by a bullet going through the window. Um, so the bullets did go across the border. Uh, now, it, you, could, you could argue that that would be a case for the Western military authorities to get involved then, but they, they didn't seem to... No, I can I can read between the lines here. There's not an appetite to uh, you know get involved in the in the Soviet sector. Although I did read about the Eisenhower packages, these food packages. I don't know a great deal about them. Were they sort of supply packages sent? Yeah, well, they, they were. They on Rias they broadcast that there were various food depots in West Berlin where Easterners could come over and uh, receive food packages because of the shortages that there were in the GDR. Yeah. 
and people were traveling quite a distance from what I could make out as well. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's that's sort of, that's soft power, I suppose, isn't it? And um, or soft influence. Yeah, butter not guns. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, but definitely on on seventeenth of June, I think the Western Allies were kind of hoping that the the people would be able to do it on their own. Yeah, um, but they they had no chance, and by by the early evening, the there were tanks on the streets of most towns and cities in East Germany. There were machine gun nests set up on on strategic corners things like that and then um people started to be, be arrested if they hadn't been arrested while they were during the demonstrations uh, during the demonstrations then then arrests started to be made okay so it was really over you know that the uprising proper was over in a day or so more or less yeah i mean sporadic strikes and demonstrations did carry on until july but the the main moment at which it might have succeeded only lasted for a few hours. I mean, in some cases, it started to rain and people just went home. Um, it's it's difficult to determine how what proportion of demonstrators were actually there to try to bring down the regime and what proportion were there just to, out of curiosity. Yeah, or just following the crowd. Yeah, I, I know that the military commandant or the Soviet military commander of Magdeburg, he he declared a state of emergency at from two o'clock onwards in Magdeburg. So that gives some idea of of the the time at which the Soviets decided to intervene and the time at which they started to mop up the demonstrations was two o'clock in the afternoon. So as I said, we've got this problem, it's not organized, there's no one there's no political figurehead. So it can't really go the same way as the Prague Spring or Hungary in 1956 it's it's over yeah. in a few hours right okay and and okay so that so the uprising sort of uh you know fade, fades away um I mean what what were the subsequent consequences did things change at that you know did Ulbricht do do anything else to change things what the SED did was um first of all they they took some measures to prevent this ever happening again. Um, they formed what were called Kampfgruppen, which was workers' militia groups. So every factory or workplace would have militarily trained men who who could go to, I suppose, go to an arms store if there was any hint of a demonstration and really nip that in the bud. As and, they, they, and, and these were the units that were used uh, to sort of uh, hold the line when they were building the Berlin Wall, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, the Kampfgruppen, they they played a big role in that as well. Yeah. Um, so they were formed as a direct consequence of 1953. They created new new riot police units, which which disposed of light armour as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main thing, I suppose, that happened was the, the Stasi was, was expanded. And... Um, there was heavy investment in in the Stasi. Before 1953, the Stasi had been a kind of jack-of-all-trades information service. It wasn't the Stasi that, that people might know from later years. Mm-hmm. The Only about, I was reading earlier today, only 1.1% of, of the Stasi officers before 1953 had an education at, at A-level. Um, so... It was really, 
it was understaffed and the the educational level of the officers wasn't really that great and this meant that well this meant that the stasi did not see the uprising of 17th of june coming mm. um it was i suppose it being so spontaneous it depends whether you think they could have seen it coming or not perhaps yes given the fact that yes he did made mistakes announce the mistakes given the fact that so many people would have been openly voicing criticism of this admission mistakes but the Stasi was undermanned and um, didn't have the resources to I suppose deal with the uprising I've seen one report of a Stasi officer saying that he thought that the noise outside was coming from a football crowd coming in for a match <laughs> so what happens that's a good there? excuse for not going outside and uh... <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> So what happens then is the start money is poured into the Stasi. Um, it becomes it is really given the job to stop a second 1953, and what that basically means is nipping all forms of opposition in the bud even even before they start, and that is what the Stasi became. Right. So 53 directly influenced the you know increase in the power of Milka and that whole surveillance state that we're familiar from films like The Life of Others. Yeah, I would say so, yeah, because the the SED were permanently afraid that this uprising would happen again. If you look in the, the files of, of the SED, whenever there's some sort of disgruntlement among workers, someone sooner or later mentions 1953. Um, it was, we talk, uh, historians talk about it, the 1953 uprising haunting the SED right until its end. And, We've got Milka in 1989 asking his advisors, is 1953 going to break out again tomorrow? Uh, And his his advisor actually says to him, no, that's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't do a a good enough job. Slightly wrong then, didn't he? (laughs) Yes, but yes, so the... The control, the methods of control, I suppose the Stasi, the the workers' militia, the riot police, they, they were created or they were certainly improved and developed. But the SED also did take measures to make living standards a bit better. They they subsidised a lot of things. They subsidised basic foodstuffs um, because they didn't want people to get to ever get as unhappy again as they had been in 1953. Right. So we've got, I mean, the people in Magdeburg used to tell me that uh, you could buy a bread roll for five cents in 1953 and it would still cost five cents in 1989 because wow. the SED was subsidising the cost. The same with tram tickets. Yeah. The, now, that, the problem with that is it more or less bankrupted the SED. It bankrupted East Germany. Yeah. It's not the only reason, but it is a contributing reason why the SED was bankrupt in, or went bankrupt in the 80s. Right. One final thing that the SED did was, or as a result of 1953, was that it took a, a line of appeasement with workers. So workers were kind of treated with kid gloves by the SED because the SED were a little bit afraid that they would, again, they would take to the streets. So you could, workers could turn up for, for work drunk and not be sacked. Um, workers could not not perform to the best of their abilities and not really be sacked. This also had a, had the problem that it affected productivity in the East German factories, this this programme of appeasement to workers. But the, the SED knew that the demonstrations in 1953 had started with unhappy workers 
and they were prepared to do more or less uh, everything they could to make sure the workers weren't weren't didn't get to that same level of unhappiness again. Right. So you know the policy of like you know kindergarten places for kids and all the other welfare policies did they come out of fifty three or were some of them in place before then? I don't. I don't think they came out of fifty three. I think they came out of the the SEDs genuine efforts to create a well a kind of welfare society i suppose mm. um i certainly wouldn't say that they're a result of 1953 to keep people sweet and to keep them happy that was just a, a program of um trying to improve the lives of of its citizens by offering offering these things to them yeah Okay. Okay. So Albrecht has really screwed up here twice, in effect. Um, what what happens to him? Well, he stays in power uh, because the Troika in Moscow decide they need an experienced hand to deal with with the unrest, to deal with the chaos in East Germany. And what Albrecht was was he was a very clever politician. He he used this opportunity to purge the SED at the Politburo level and a little bit lower of any potential opponents. And he, there were two main people he, he perceived as his opponents. Um, whether he had reason to or not is debatable. The first person was Wilhelm Zeiser, who was the original Minister for State Security. And the second was Rudolf Herrnstadt, who was the editor of Neues Deutschland, the newspaper. He perceived them as opponents and he... He basically accused them of having been in league with the demonstrators. And, of course, um, Ulbricht had the backing of Moscow, so there was no chance that Ulbricht would ever ever be removed from power. So Ulbricht could basically point at someone in the Politburo and, and basically say, you were on the side of the demonstrators, and then they would be expelled from the party. And were they, I would have thought they'd be executed on that basis, were they? No, they were just... They were more or less banished to... I, I'm not sure what happened to Zeiser. I know Herrnstadt was banished to a smaller town or city. He never, he never held a great... He never held a position of power again. He was more or less shown the door and, and forgotten about, I suppose. Right. Um, and what what Ulbricht did was he, he used this... Remember we... I mentioned that article from the 14th of June. It's time to put the, the mallet down. Yeah. He said that that was Hernstadt's attempt to to bring him down. Although it wasn't, at, the article wasn't critical of Ulbricht, it was critical of the lower level SED members. Ulbricht, after 1953, after the uprising, said, This was a critical article of me. You, you were responsible for fomenting unrest amongst the, dem- amongst the population. Mm. And he, he basically used that as an excuse to get rid of Hernstadt. And ironically, Ulbricht, after the June uprising, was in a stronger position. <laughs> um, not not amongst the people. The the thing about the June uprising was that it the SED it showed the SED were politically bankrupt. Basically, the it had shown the the people of East Germany that the SED was only really in power because there were Soviet tanks and troops there. Yeah. Um, the SED would never enjoy popular support from from its people before 1953 and after 1953. 
um, in reference to this state of affairs, the German historians like to use a phrase that the SED regime was balanced on the tip of Soviet bayonets. <laughs> and um, you take those bayonets away and the, and the SED will come crashing down. And effectively, I suppose that's what happened in 1989 when Gorbachev said, okay, we're not going to intervene anymore. Yeah. And yeah. the SED regime's not, not long after falls, I suppose. But definitely in 1953, Ulbricht politically came out stronger, which which is unbelievable, really. So, I mean, you, you've studied particularly some of the, or you've managed to get hold of some, and you've already mentioned some of these, some really interesting um, eyewitness um, accounts. Have you got any, you know, accounts of people whose parents or, or people who were quite high up in the SED as to how they, you know, saw how things had gone on um not high up in the SED I did speak to former SED members and it really depends or it depended on what they now think of East Germany I certainly did speak to a few people who were still in that mindset of um well first of all I have to explain the the SED's interpretation of the uprising was that it was it was an attempted fascist putsch um that had been instigated by well fascists by hooligans by uh, by the cia and by west german agents so so that is because this uprising had happened and the sed couldn't let it just let it be that this was an anti-sed uprising they had to come up with their own version of the events and that was that was their version of the events uh, now, I did meet a couple of people in Magdeburg, and this was in 2009, who who still believe that version of events. Who would still, one man in particular, he said, um, I only saw, I was I was in the factories on the morning of 17th of June. I only saw smiling faces. Um, and obviously, that I can't believe that was true. The The archival documents show that that wasn't true, but he was still in this mindset. Um, yeah, but then again, he we spoke about later events in Magdeburg in 1989, and he said there were no demonstrations in Magdeburg in 1989. And I know for a fact that tens of thousands of people demonstrated. Yeah, yes, yeah, I think that's taking his uh, nostalgia to uh, a different level there. Yeah, I mean the the SED members I did speak to, and also non SED members, they did. They did talk about the uprising in 1953 and they they didn't completely agree with the party's account of what had happened. But then they they said, well, there must have been Western agents about. There there must have been Western agents in East Berlin. And I I haven't seen any evidence of this, but there there were obviously Western spies and agents in East Berlin and, and throughout the GDR. I'm not saying that they... They instigated the uprising. I definitely think that they didn't. They didn't play a role in starting it. This was all about the SED's mistakes and unhappy East German citizens. But then sometimes you can't help thinking, well, maybe once it had started, they perhaps facilitated things. Yeah, um, helped things along. Yes, at least spread the word to other places. Again, I've got no historical evidence for that, so I, I will have to say that yeah. um, I can't definitely say for sure. But it's not with it. It's not, 
it's within the realms of possibility, I suppose. Now, um, you're, you're doing a really interesting Twitter project on the uprising of 53. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, it was based on an, something that I'd seen actually Channel 4 do in 2014, which was for the, it was the 70th anniversary of the D-Day invasion. I, I looked at that and I thought, well, 17th of June lends itself to that because it's just one or two days. Um, so what I've done is I've created this, this project. Um, uh, it's at 17th of uni, which is J-U-N-I, uh, yeah, 1953 I'll, Live. I'll uh, make sure I put some links on the, uh, the okay. show notes to that. Yeah. So what I've done is I've created seven characters in different cities in East Germany, and on 17th of June 2018, and the 16th actually in East Berlin, for the characters in East Berlin, I'll tweet as if as if it's happening then, and it will be they will describe the events and tell the story of the uprising through through their tweets. And this is all based on obviously on my research, what people have told me about what they experienced and what they saw. Yeah. Um, and I've it's not just East Berlin. There's Halle, Magdeburg, um, Dresden. There's someone in Görlitz. I chose Görlitz because that was the only place in East Germany during the uprising where there was a, a concerted effort to take over the political institutions in, in the town. Right. So a, t- um, a town committee was formed that spoke to the demonstrators and said, this is, we're going to represent you. This is wow. what we want to do. But th- that was, that was an isolated case, but I've included girl. It's because, because of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you've also got a, a book as well. Uh, yeah, that was published uh, in 2014. So that was basically my my PhD research, um, which didn't look at the events per se. I mean, it was focused on Magdeburg and I, I described what happened there, but it was more about how the uprising was remembered by East German citizens, given the fact that they had taken part in this uprising. They, they knew what it had been about and then that very, or the very next day, they read in, in Neues Deutschland that they had apparently taken part in a fascist putsch. <laughs> um, and how did they reconcile themselves with that? Did, did they believe that? Um, and then the, the problem the SED had was that so many people had taken part, it just couldn't ignore what had happened. It just couldn't. You couldn't flick open the history book on 1953 and there'd be absolutely no mention of 17th of June. Yeah. Um, so what they did was they promoted this fascist putsch. Um, well, that, that was just the, you know, the, the best bogeyman that they could put up there. That, that alongside the CIA. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, yes. Was, yeah, was, you know, obviously the, uh, the fairy tale that they uh, put out. Um, yeah. and ended up in the uh, school books. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and it had all the all the classic Nazi things in there. So there were people singing the, the Deutschland lead, which is the Deutschland über alles song. Yeah. Um, there's a figure in Halle, a woman called Erna Dorn, and she became a propaganda figure for 17th of June, and she was apparently a former concentration camp guard who was in the prison in Halle and she was broken out of the prison by CIA agents and they told her you're free now you're free to to 
basically reinstall the Third Reich. Um, and there are some fictional accounts of her as well, and there are things like she she has to stop her arm waving up in the air because she was so used to lifting her her riding crop up in the air in in the concentration camp to to beat the prisoners with. Um, wow! Really, really sort of over the top vicious things, but but anybody who said, well, it wasn't a fascist putsch, they would then be accused of being a fascist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that obviously you didn't want to be accused of being a fascist in, in East Germany. So yeah. what the SED did, though, was that it severely limited the information that it made available. So it was in the history books, but there was only about two or three paragraphs. It, same in the school textbooks. I spoke to a few school teachers who had to teach the subject, and they said they they read the two paragraphs from the textbook as quickly as possible and then moved on. Right. They, they didn't want to be caught out in any way. Um, the, the teachers I spoke to had a particular problem because they taught classes in schools um, where, mem- where they knew their pupils, their parents were members of the army and members of the Stasi. Um, yeah. So they had to be very careful how they taught the subject. Um, and Basically, the SED limited information in in the hope that people would forget. They one interesting thing in Magdeburg was the the three policemen who died. They each had a a name. They each had a street named after them. And usually in East Germany, if a street was named after somebody, there would be a little plaque underneath the street sign to explain who this person was. Hmm. So they. But because they wanted to encourage people to forget 1953, under these street signs, it just said anti-fascist resistance fighter, um, which technically was true because they had fought the supposed fascists yeah. on the 17th of June. And I asked my interviewees about these street signs and they said they looked at them and when they saw anti-fascist resistance fighter, they thought that this person had died during the Second World War. Yeah, There was, there was no obvious link to 17th of June and just one more thing about the street signs I I did find a book called it was in Magdeburg and it was called what what street signs tell us about Magdeburg and it it was a it was printed in the GDR and I looked at the the draft manuscripts of it to see what they had found about these men who had died in 1953 where did these street names come from and they said we did, We can't find any information about who these men were. They they what couldn't. A surprise. Yeah. Um, so it was. It was basically they encouraged people to forget about it. That the only problem was that West Germany celebrated seventeenth of June as a national holiday. Um, so in nineteen fifty four, the West German Parliament declared seventeenth of June the day of German unity. Which, which is nowadays is the third of October. Yeah, um, and they also renamed that street from the Brandenburg Gate, didn't they? Yeah, the Strasse uh, of seventeenth of June. Yeah, yeah. Um, now this was a permanent thorn in the side of the SED because what happened on the seventeenth of June each year was West German media would broadcast programs in commemoration of what had happened in East Germany, and the obviously East German citizens would more often than not tune into these programs 
they might not have watched all of the programs and I certainly did speak to some people who didn't believe everything they saw. They they recognised Western propaganda as much as Eastern propaganda. Um but it kept it kept the date in their consciousness. It it was an annual reminder that there had been an anti regime uprising in in East Germany. And later in the seventies this caused some problems for West Germany because we've got Willy Brandt and his Ostpolitik. He's trying to get more friendly with East Germany, trying to get more friendly with the East. And but then seventeenth of June every year they're celebrating this anti Eastern uprising. <laughs> um, what happened in the 70s was that in the 50s and 60s there were official political commemorations with speeches in the Bundestag and and things like that in the 70s they're cancelled really anti-communist groups still celebrate it and what they normally do is or what they would do is they would light bonfires along the inner German border to commemorate the day um but in the 70s, the West German politicians tended to to, to beat it with a, bar, a barge pole, really, because yeah. it was a, an obstacle to, to bringing East and West closer together. Yeah. Have you got any GDR or Cold War items that you've collected down the years? I've got um, I've got an SED pin badge. Um, I mean, I, I don't wear it when I go out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got that off eBay just a few years ago. Yeah. I've got a, a map of Magdeburg from the GDR period, which has got a lot of buildings missing off it where the Stasi headquarters were in Magdeburg. Oh, right, yeah. Um, but the, my favourite thing I've got, actually, is um, someone I interviewed about 1953 who'd been there on the day. He, on the afternoon of June 19th, of 17th of June, he took down uh, a poster. That, he took down an official poster declaring a state of emergency in Magdeburg and he kept it, they hid it for years. And after the interview, he said, would you like it? Uh, so I've got the, it says on it by order of the Soviet commander of the city of Magdeburg and it, it's got the details. And at the end it says anyone caught, caught on the streets after nine o'clock will be subject to martial law. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so I've got that. I mean, wow, that's an amazing piece of history that. Well, it's quite dangerous for him to take that down because yeah. I know a, another, a case of another person who took one of these things down and ripped it up. And um, he was rewarded for that with 12 years in prison. Um, so, yeah, but that's, that's as you say, a, a real piece of history. From the, It was actually on the wall in Magdeburg. I was going to ask you what you're still hoping to collect, but I, I can't think there's much that would top that apart from a maybe a Soviet um, tank. <laughs> <laughs> not really i mean i'm not really into collecting the stuff uh, yeah items per se i mean i collect i collect books i suppose you you could say but yeah yeah i was going to come i was going to come on to books so let, let's just park that one there okay. um presumably you've traveled to a lot of these places in the former east germany are there any particular places you'd recommend for people to visit to perhaps better understand the um the gdr i mean berlin is the obvious place but the fact that you've traveled to magdeburg and and other places i'd be interested to hear your thoughts yeah. um, i was going to say berlin really but um i mean in magdeburg there's um 
it's the Germans have a term for it, a Gedenkstätte, which means a site of memory or a site of commemoration. And they're normally buildings that were used for something that have now been turned into museums. So there's there's one in Magdeburg, which is in a former Stasi prison, mm-hmm. um, which is, that's where I did a lot of my research. So I'd probably recommend that. There's a, in Halle, there's a, again, another prison called the Rota Oxa, the Red Ox. And it was called that because of the red brick uh, buildings. That's That's got a really good museum, not just due that goes right back to the the Nazi period. A lot of people are executed in that prison in, uh, by the Nazis. So I could recommend that in Halle. Um, I suppose there's the obviously Hohenschönhausen in in Berlin, the prison there. That's, yeah, that is that very chilling. I find. That. Yeah, um, and then the alternative is the DDR museum, I suppose, which shows the the other side of life. Yeah, in East Germany, uh, not yeah. not just the not just the repressive side. Yeah, no, I, d- I particularly like the um, uh, representation of an East German living room. Yes, that's, that's. I mean, yeah. it doesn't look particularly different from what I remember my parents' living room looking like. To to be honest, it's that very seventies, sixties, seventies feel about it. But yeah, no, it's uh, no. I would I'd recommend that museum as well. What's the most, you know, in, in your research, what, what would you say is the most surprising thing that you've discovered? Something that you just thought, gosh, I didn't expect that. I suppose, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit, I suppose that what comes from my research and, and my reading about East Germany is that East, East Germany wasn't just a, a Stasi land. Um, I know we've got this, the book Stasi Land by Anna Funder, mm-hmm. but... I'm very much of the school of thought that obviously I don't deny the Stasi existed and the, and the, the Berlin Wall and it, they were terrible, evil, evil organisations and terrible measures to control people. But then I look at, and a lot of other historians of, of the GDR look at the experiences of ordinary people. So what was everyday life like? Um, and what you do find is that people didn't live in fear of the Stasi every day for 40 years. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like Big Brother in, in 1984. Um, of course, you, there were obvious limits. There were limits to what you could do, to what you could say. And if you hit up against the, the borders of the dictatorship, then, then you would be seriously punished for doing that. Um, but you do find when you talk to East Germans and when you read books as well on the subject that they, it was possible for them to have happy lives, for them to enjoy their lives. I mean, I, I asked my interviewees at the end of the interviews, did you have a good life in East Germany? And they, they always gave the same sort of answer. They said, yes, of course, I had a good life. I, I grew up there. I got married there. I had children there why wouldn't I have enjoyed my life? Um, so there's that side of the study of East Germany as well. There's the, the study of the oppression, the Stasi, the Berlin Wall and that. But then there's the other side of looking at how people, I suppose, made the best of it. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the, the whole, you know, nostalgia um, thing is, you know, the, the, it, I, you know, certainly the interviews that I've read with people who lived in it, that you know it was a 
simpler time there wasn't the commercial pressures that there is now and obviously you were looked after cradle to grave so as long as you weren't outspoken you know you could have a reasonably comfortable trouble-free life i guess yeah i mean it's there are a lot of different points of view on it really and a lot of historians who would criticize what i've just said um it depends on would you be able to live somewhere where you cannot speak your mind on the government? Mm-hmm. Um, it depends what value you put on that. Um, and again, I, I want to emphasise, I'm not saying the Stasi wasn't terrible and the Bail and wasn't terrible, but then but the if I said to an East German, oh, you're from East Germany, you must have been terrible there, what a terrible life you must have had, they would, they would rail against that interpretation of East Germany. Even if they hadn't been a member of the SED, they would they would say, "Well, no, that's not that's not what my life was like." And if you look into the research on the Stasi, um, people learn to live with it. Very only a minority of people crossed paths with the Stasi. Now, you might argue that because people knew the Stasi were exist existed, that they altered their behaviour accordingly. So mm. the Stasi did actually affect everybody's life. And yeah. I I would probably argue that as well. But then to be in really serious trouble with the Stasi, only a minority of people mm. were. Um, and it depends whether you think where they, even they, they learn to live by, they learn to play by the rules and to, and to enjoy their lives by playing by the rules. But then even, even those rules were quite were sometimes in some cases quite fluid you could you could make complaints to the regime you could the, there was a great tradition in east germany of writing letters to complain about things and the the regime wanted people to write letters to complain i mean you couldn't write i hate eric Honecker or anything <laughs> like that um but you could complain about the dustbins not getting yeah, collected could, and things like that. Yeah, and you, and if you put it in the right terms, then you often people use the regime's own propaganda slogans against them um, to try to get what they wanted. Um, so you could complain, and the regime would actually it did actually listen to its citizens and try where where possible and where it agreed, mm-hmm. try to improve their lives. I mean, on my research on crime, I've read quite a few reports of people feeling that they were mistreated by the police and writing to the the GDR's attorney general. And he actually looked into the cases and he comes down on the side of, of the people, of the complainants, and he, and the police are reprimanded. Mm. Um, well, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back for when, when you've completed your research on crime. Okay. Um, I'd re- yeah, it'd be a, another area I'd really, I'd really like to talk about. Now, I normally ask at this point... Um, if you were a filmmaker and had the budget, what real life Cold War incident would you recreate on film and why? But I have a feeling I know the answer to this question. Uh, yes, so I've got I've got seventeenth of June, nineteen fifty three, written down. Yeah, but uh, are you aware of any uh, films made that sort of um, portray the fifty three uprising or any aspects of it? There's um... obviously not East German, but. <laughs> Or maybe they are portraying it as a fascist putsch. There were a couple of East German films that were produced um, in which 
the uprising appeared. Um, but the demonstrators were they were they were young men in jeans and leather jackets, uh, obviously from the west. They were dressed in western fashion. The, the demonstrators, yeah. Um, the there is a, a German mini series. I think it was two or three episodes called Two Days of Hope." It's it's in German, obviously, um, yeah. and that was about the uprising. But there's not been that that much of a focus on on the uprising, really, in terms of films, anyway. Yeah, surprising, really, it being such a significant date in certainly recent German history. But I guess it's it's you know it has been overshadowed by the events of '89. Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay, so if if you were making this Cold War film, um, have you got a particular piece of music you think would be a good soundtrack to it? Well, I've, I have been thinking about this too, and I suppose being from Liverpool, I should really say back in the USSR. Um, <laughs> by the Beatles, but I'm not, a, I'm not a great Beatles fan, so... God, that must be sacrilege <laughs> where you're from. I suppose it is, yeah. Um <laughs> I do like, uh, you know, Wind of Change by the Scorpions. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, that, that was good the hairs on the back of my neck. Um, the, but I suppose I would go with, I don't know if you know the song Leningrad by Billy Joel. No, I um, don't know that. That's, that's, a, that's quite a good song. He's singing from, um, or the lyrics are about two different experiences, the experiences of an American and the experiences of a Russian in Leningrad. Um, throughout the Cold War, and at the end, the the Cold War's ended. I think this was 1995. It was written, and they come, and they come together and realise that they're not actually that much different to each other. Uh, okay. And I quite like I quite like the message there. Yeah. Okay. No, I like those. I'll uh, I'll add some links to those. So uh, we we talked about books uh, slightly. Are there any? books in English that you would particularly recommend for anyone interested in, you know, the GDR generally, as well as the 53 Uprising. Obviously, there is your excellent uh, book. <laughs> Thank you. Memories of the Uprising of June 53, which we'll be putting a link to. But is there any anything, any other books that you uh, recommend? Um, I mean, the author, Mary Fulbrook, is always the go-to person, really, uh, for for historians of East Germany. She, I think in 1995 it was, she published a book called The Anatomy of a Dictatorship, yeah. which was really the a seminal work for, in that period on, on the GDR. And then I think 10 years later, she wrote out another book called The People's State, which is uh, basically about what I was talking about before, the, the experiences of people on the ground. Yeah, um, I've I've got both of those, and they yeah. they are very good for anybody who wants to understand um, more about the the GDR. Yeah, and then finally, just a recent book that I got was the GDR or the DDR Handbook from the Vendor Museum. Yeah, uh, which is really a, that's that's not a turgid academic book. That's full color, glossy pictures, and it covers the range of subjects it covers is is unbelievable. I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard good things about that. I think that's on my Christmas list. The good thing about that as well is that's that's in English. Uh, it's in English and German as well. So if you want to learn a bit of German, that's good. Well, of course, you've got to say that being a teacher <laughs> of German. Good plug there. I'm I, I'm impressed how you managed to slip that in. <laughs> so 
uh richard where, where can people find you online if they want to get in contact with you and, and hear more about you uh, well i've got this um the east germany online twitter account which is at ddr online um i set that up last summer just as just as a bit of a hobby really but it's got rock quite pleased the, the following and the, the reception it's had um so what i do on there is i basically look for news stories and interesting things about east germany and just tweet them and what i do is i i'll offer a short summary of them in english because most of them are in german um so i didn't want to restrict the the audience for them and um, go yeah. back to the, Eng- the three, english. three and a half thousand followers i'm impressed richard <laughs> thanks <laughs> um i haven't paid for any of them either <laughs> uh, just for the english thing with my 17th of june project the i must mentioned that there will be a character tweeting in english it did originally start as a german project but i thought it would be a bit it would restrict the audience if there wasn't someone in english so there is an english uh, character in there um and something which is quite exciting about that project is i was in talks yesterday with a media company called eight thousand foot media mm-hmm. and they are interested and we haven't ironed out the details yet but they're interested in perhaps making some short films based on the stories that the characters present um so do you have to watch this space for that wow well yeah keep me posted on that and uh that 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 sounds like a well it's a really interesting project anyway the uh the the twitter um side of it but um yeah because i mean you know i obviously i was asking you about um you know films you know there are a number of east german sort of themed series that that have been out there i don't know whether you've you've seen um i think it's called under the same sky yes i actually i watched that only last week what did you think of it i i thought it was i i enjoyed it i liked it yeah yeah. Um, Yeah, i thought it sort of captured the moment as 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 how i would imagine it yes i mean I can only go, I was born in 1982, so I've got no sort of experiences of, of Cold War Berlin or whatever. So, but from what I can gather, yes, it, it was, I don't know if it's based on historical detail, perhaps, perhaps not, it, but it seems to be a fair representation of different strands of East German life. I mean, I like the fact there's the Stasi agent in there, but I also like the fact that there's the doping storyline yeah. as well. Yeah, there's there's a couple of good storylines, but obviously when I interviewed my um, US Signals Intelligence guy uh, on the uh, second episode, he uh, said there were no German civilians working at that level in um, oh, right. the Signals Intelligence. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they may have taken some liberties there, but no, it was a good story. And I, I think it, you're, you're right. Those dual storylines that they, that they had had there were um, good. And I presume you've seen Deutschland 83. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I enjoyed that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, I did, I was as a historian. I always sometimes wonder about the historical accuracy of, of things. Um, but I haven't looked into the background of that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, there's some accuracy around that whole Able Archer exercise and the fear that, you know, that it was a, um, you know, the, the, the Soviets thought that it was NATO preparing for a first strike yeah. uh, nuclear attack. Um, but, you know, with all of these series or films, you know, they 
sort of if you just stuck to pure historical facts, they would probably not be the most interesting film to or entertaining film to watch. So I guess they, you know, they do have to take some liberties. I, I suppose, yeah. The, there's the one thing I wanted, I was wondering about, um, or one thing I feel about the, the film, The Lives of Others, is I'm quite critical of the film. I mean, it from what I can gather, it does recreate a, a certain experience of East Germany um, very well. But then when I watch that film, I always wonder about, I always think, why, why is the Stasi agent, why does he become... The, the hero, I suppose, if you can call it that. I, I would prefer perhaps to see a film where the victims of the Stasi were were given yeah. centre stage. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see. I see what you mean. Should have put a spoiler alert in there before you said. Oh, that. <laughs> I mean, and it was another spoiler alert. But I was at a conference once, and there's that scene in the film where he he almost changes his. The Stasi officer almost changes his outlook on life while listening to that piece of classical music. Yeah. Um, and someone criticised the film for, that was a very Germanic thing that they, you listen to classical music and then suddenly see the light. Um, and he didn't think it was very believable. You've got to engage. You can't just, like you said, you can't just make a, a film for historians. You've got to engage other people as well. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I still think it's a, you know, it's a good film, but yeah, completely get that, you know, it, it does uh, make the uh, Stasi officer sort of uh, a, a hero of, yeah. to some degree. The, of course, there's the there's goodbye Lenin as well. Um, that's always popular with my students, I think, because they can... They can relate to that, yeah. I suppose so, yes. Um, although, again, I was at another conference and someone said, goodbye Lenin isn't a comedy, it's a tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or, the, or her parents perceived it as a tragedy. Right. Um, uh, obviously, that's to do with their experiences since 1989, I suppose, and, yeah. and their experiences before 1989. But that's that's another another reading of it, I suppose. Yeah, and th- and that's a whole other conversation because I'm I'm just I'd love to speak to somebody as to you know what it must have felt like for your country to disappear overnight. And suddenly the shops that you're familiar with are replaced by a load of West German brands virtually yeah, I mean, overnight. I mean, that must have been mind-blowing. It caused, obviously I can't relate to that because it's obviously never happened to me, but it caused a lot of a lot of more pragmatic problems for people. Um, I know one man who was studying for a PhD right at the end of the GDR period, so 1988, and the wall came down and his research was completely invalidated because it turned out that his subject has already been researched in the West and he'd never had access to Western materials. Wow. Um, so this, and he ended up becoming a window cleaner for a time because, well, all this, he thought his research was original and why wouldn't he? He wasn't allowed access yeah. to the Western but so there's pragmatic things as well oh yeah you don't think of that sort of you know situation and then there's so, the one one of my interviewees was quite worried would his and other other people as well i suppose worried would their educational qualifications be recognized in a united germany mm. um just thing just worries like that i mean that's separate to our style our style jubile. yeah 
Well, I don't, I, you know, Richard, if, if you were keen, I would love to have you back again to talk about some, some other subjects around the GDR. Uh, no, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, I've, uh, I've very much enjoyed our, uh, our talk this evening. I, uh, so have I, um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, it's, it, to get my research out there really. I mean, I'm very much of the opinion that, academic research shouldn't just uh, be gathering dust on a library shelf somewhere um and there's too much research i think that goes on in universities to which ac- only academics have have real access um so it's good to it's good to sh- get get that research out there and bring it to a wider audience well no i'm i'm delighted you've made the time it has been a fascinating um conversation and uh, i hope the listeners have appreciated it as as well um thank you very much thank you i hope you enjoyed our interview with richard if you'd like to understand more about some of the subjects we discussed there's links on the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number six Don't forget, you can join our discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter at at Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider. Thank you for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, You'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.